Good everybody, um, welcome to another episode of Boss of Knowledge and uh, in this episode it's just going to be me because um, Tane has got to go do some training so which is all good so you get to hear my voice and my and my guest voice as well. Um, and as always when we start our, our podcast we'd like to talk about what we've put into our Boss of Knowledge over the last the last few weeks that we've had a chat. I think the biggest thing that I've put into my Boss of Knowledge is the um, to be adaptable and be flexible because um Basically, as we've seen over the last few days and last few weeks here in New Zealand, we have had an increase in the in Omicron spreading. We've seen the, the protests in Wellington. We've seen the weather changing. And, um, you know, it's quite easy to stop and go, oh, I don't want to do this or do that, or to take sides without actually understanding anyone's perspective. And I think the biggest learning for me has just been just not to um, put a certain lens on one point of view, but actually to change my lens and look at different points of view because everyone has a point of view and there's no right or wrong. Um, and then we might come to that in today's today's podcast. As always, our listeners, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about student journeys and people's journeys as they've gone through through life, because, you know, um, there's expectations out there for you to know what you want to do. And what we want to try and do with this podcast is to show you that actually that's, you know, all those expectations can disappear overnight. And that's okay. And to talk about that today, we have, as always, another fantastic, fantastic guest. Um, I have been really privileged to know this young man for a very long time. Um, it is my honor and my privilege to welcome Casey Davis Bell onto our podcast. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've, we have been friends for a number of years now, so thank you for having me. No, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege. Um, Casey, so... Um, I know you as well as I as, as I do. Um, do you want to tell our guests, our listeners, who you are? You know where you're from and what do you do, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah, sure thing. So, originally born in New Plymouth, now living in Wellington, I've found my passion in community building, where I run a technology startup um, focused on community building. So it's a virtual event platform which allows networking. Uh, we're currently going through some. Um, interesting growth opportunities working through an accelerator we we're just talking about this before we, we jumped on um but in, in the essence of it helping people find uh belonging through community and that's, a, that's such a powerful thing because in today's world you know lots of us are individualistic we look at ourselves and forget that actually we live in a community and the community is where we we, we, we thrive and our community helps us thrive but also technology is, is part of our lives and you know how do we use that to actually build our communities which is pretty an awesome space for you to work in but before you did this year let's talk about where it all started let's let's talk about where we first crossed paths a long 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 time ago um that makes me sound old but um a while ago you were at Spotswood high school in the taranaki um yeah when we first crossed paths and tell tell us about at that point in time what what, what was happening in your world um because you you were head head boy at the school at that time there you were looking to go to university or to tertiary and that year was a pretty challenging year for you in, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's good and, good and bad points in that. What, what Should we go back and speak about that? What happened in that year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess this would be 2012. Yeah. So uh, 10 years ago now, yeah. um, time, time certainly flies. And as you mentioned, at that point, um, I'd, I'd become the head boy of the school um, of, of New Plymouth, um, of Spots College in New Plymouth. And there was quite a significant thing for me because I, I mean, just being kind of authentic right off, right off the bat before that I'd actually spent a bit of time in Dunedin where schooling hadn't actually gone that well for me, if I'm going to be honest. Um, yeah. I had, I had a bunch of, I guess my peer group was uh, some older, older kids um, sort of thing. And, and it kind of led to me not going to school a lot, not really taking it seriously. 
um, that that sort of thing where I think I probably actually had the lowest attendance record out of out of my entire um, school at that time in Dunedin. Wow. And when I went to New Plymouth, it was I moved up and lived with my dad, and it was, it was an opportunity for me to um, take myself more seriously and give it my best shot. And that's that's what I did. And going to New Plymouth the first year, um, so I joined in year eleven. And in the the first year, my goal was attendance because I I had something horrific like a thirty percent attendance record wow. beforehand. Yeah. We're, we're talking to the point that I previously had a truancy officer that gave up on me. It was that bad. Yeah. When I went oh. to New Plymouth um, and and started going to Spotswood College, my goal was attendance, and I got a hundred percent attendance. Oh wow! So like Amazing. I didn't miss a day. I, in fact, I remember you wouldn't do this now because of COVID, but I remember a day that um, I was actually quite sick and. Um, I insisted my dad was like no you can stay at home you're like genuinely not looking good and I'm like I I want to go to school because I was making a point for myself um apologies to any friends if I made you sick hopefully I didn't (laughs) you definitely wouldn't do that now um but but anyway it was it's a point to myself and then from there can I ask you you a question quickly um so um I don't know if you can remember this but what was what was your shift in your mindset to go from hey you know at school Dunedin didn't bother going to school and you moved to Plymouth, was it the change of scenery or was it something within yourself that actually drove, drove that? What was, what was your drive, if you can remember that? Yeah, probably, probably like many things, there's like multiple factors that, that can play to it. I, I do think that I was 16 at the time um, and I knew I wanted to make an impact on the world, even when I wasn't going to um, school much in Dunedin, but my environment was not very conducive of that. So any kind of efforts I made to put myself in that frame of mind was significantly outweighed by other things that were happening. So I think that foundation was really important. Um, But to be honest, I I also think it was the right time for me to go and live with my dad. I was kind of going through, I guess, adolescence and kind of discovering myself and all that sort of jazz. Um, And having a bit more kind of like structure, I think, was what I needed at the time. Um, There was that. And... To be honest, I also just think Spotswood College is such an amazing place where I was able to be my authentic self. I was welcomed in both by the school staff and students with with open arms um, and not judged for my past. So I think all those things lined up uh, where I then was able to just like see opportunities and be encouraged to take them. So for example, when I first started going, I remember there was like... um, like getting on like just put my hand up to to get involved in different kind of extracurricular activities or having a say in different things it was just like so encouraged and and refreshing that I I knew it was my opportunity to to change my narrative but do I I do think it came intrinsically um yeah. because when I say that my my experience wasn't the best in Dunedin I have I have many friends that were going to the school I was going to that did exceptionally well um and so it's, it's not a reflection on the school. I think, I think the, the thing that actually happens is your intrinsic motivation. There are external motivations that can influence your narrative. Yep. Um, but the, the self-narrative you tell yourself is so, so powerful. And, and, and that's true. I think, I think um, as we've spoken on our last, on our last few podcasts, is it's, the, it's your self-talk. And your self-talk can either make you or break you. And, um, and sometimes you don't realize that. In fact, lots of us don't realize that until something good or bad happens and you actually, where does this actually come from? Um, so that's really, yeah. and it's, it's really, it's really awesome. Your awareness at the age of 16, you know, given where you've come from to this, this that intrinsic motivator is really powerful for you to do that. 
Yeah, and you're so right as well in regards to like it influences your actions. Yeah. Like a super, super quick anecdote, and so without trying to derail us too much, but for anyone that's listening, think of if, if you've got a car, think of what sort of car you've got. And then think to yourself, how often do you see that car around when you're driving around or whatever? You probably see it a lot. I bet you I probably don't see that car very often unless we've got the same type of car. Um, and the, the whole point to that is that in your mind, you take more notice of the things that are important to you or that the beliefs that you have. So for me, I've, I drive a Mazda Verissa, so I see them around all the time. It's not that I'm exposed to Mazda Verissas more than other people, but for me, it's just something I notice now. And I think the same can be true with our beliefs, which is if you believe in yourself and you're wanting to do a particular thing or pursue something, you are going to be more consciously aware of when opportunities present themselves in front of you because you're looking for it in the first place. Um, so I, I think a positive narrative and having clarity on, on what you're trying to at least discover, even if it's just like broadly in the right on the direction of something you're trying to discover, you'll unlock more opportunities by having clarity around that. That's so true. And one of, one of there's, a, there's a, a phrase I like to use when I'm working with young people. It's um, where your mind goes, your energy flows or something like that. Because, you know, as, as you said in the analogy, when you start seeing these things, this is, you're going to see it all the time, even though they've always been there. It's always been there, but you just don't notice it because your, your energy is elsewhere. And it's really important, like you say, with those, with those beliefs. Totally. Um, another quick example is on, snowboarding yeah. or, or, ski, or skiing. You don't look at the tree. You look at the gap because <laughs> that's yeah. to your point that's that's where you'll end up yeah. um so I, I guess that was the the pivotal thing is i had some intrinsic motivational change that happened i was then fortunate enough that i had an environment that was supportive of whatever direction that looked like so yeah i got heavily involved and tenants record became um flawless um which for me in itself was just like such a big accomplishment um, and then I transitioned in year 12 to wanting to focus on academics and I was through a lot of support from different teachers and also friends that were quite driven managed to get endorsed with excellence for level two which for me was just like a crazy goal um, yep. which I I mean <laughs> I, I, I actually had a um, I was getting to the point where we're approaching end of year externals, essentially for a dose of excellence. Um, I don't know if it's changed much, but the you had to have 50 credits of that level and above at excellence. And I remember getting close to externals and not wanting to just rely on externals because that's um, there's more pressure that comes with that. Ideally, you want to get it from externals, but you want to kind of have it close in the bag before yeah. you go into externals. And I remember even, um, I didn't study history at the time, but I um, convinced the history teacher um, who was a fantastic teacher to let me get involved in history as a subject and um, do different assignments and expand my knowledge and, and and my capabilities in that subject, but also it allowed me to kind of further bolster some of my credits as well. So I get quite competitive. I, I think I've got a bit of an A-type personality um, that yeah. maybe sits in there, but um, nonetheless, I, I took that seriously and, and managed to do that. And then I was um, very lucky in being able to... Um, put my name forward and get the support both of the students and, and the staff to become head boy for 20, 2012. Yeah, and I think and I think um, for, for our listeners out there, what this is an important thing because Boston College is the only co-ed school in Taranaki, which so it's quite it's quite a uh, it's, it's quite a, a different school within the region in terms of what they offer. And um, you know, like like I said before, it is it, it offers a whole lot of different things for different people. Not to say that different schools don't, um, but also the fact that your te- your history teacher actually let you do that. You know, a lot of other schools would be like, you're not in my subject. 
you can't do this. So um, it's, it's, it's a testament to both you and your t-shirts who let you do that. So that's awesome. So you were now award head boy um, or head student, head boy, I think it's head boy. There was head boy, head boy. Job, right? Yeah. And um, you know, what, that, that was an interesting year for you. And I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, I mean, it was a transformational year um, yeah. with genuinely the highest highs and the lowest lows of my life. Yeah. Uh, I guess starting with the, the highest highs, uh, being in that position where also probably worth noting that at the time before I'd become head boy, I was so nervous at public speaking. Like I remember um, I remember having like an English ass uh, assignment where I had to like deliver a monologue in front of the class and I was shaking like a leaf. Oh, wow. And it was only like 15, 15, 20 students in, in the class. Um, that to then with head boy, every uh, assembly, uh, myself and um, head girl, uh, Anna Hinton, um, who's a good friend and an incredible person, uh, would have to address the whole school. And we're talking close to, I forget the exact number, but it wouldn't have been that far off a thousand students. Yeah. So it was quite transfor transformational and just, putting yourself into a position of being uncomfortable, but where growth was happening and yeah. being receptive to feedback. I think that's such an underrated skill. And if there's like one superpower, I think people can embrace it is being open-minded to feedback, whether it's delivered in a positive way or even just as a direct critique. I, I think it's always an opportunity that you can become better, which is such a gift. And I, I think it can take a real art because some Sometimes the way people can deliver feedback uh, can be hard to reconcile because sometimes people, to be honest, some people are shit at giving feedback. If I'm just yeah. going to be blunt, they yeah. can, they say it in a way that can just feel offensive. Um, but no matter if, if you can embrace the ability to be almost agnostic to the delivery of someone else's feedback and look at the substance of what they're saying. And is there something there that you can take on board to become a better person? If you do that, you're, it's just incredible what happens in your life. And that was like a focus point that I had was trying to improve and improve and improve in different things. So there's the public speaking side of things. Um, there was also just a lot of different leadership related activities, as you can imagine. Yeah. Balancing that with also not dropping the ball on academics um, and all that sort of stuff. So, and also just, it was, I just felt very blessed in my friend group. Um, Spotswood College was a very, open and welcoming community where I, I felt that the, the year 13 group that I was part of, it felt like we were one giant family. It honestly did. Um, so it was a very positive experience in that. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think, where, where in the year would you have come? Because it would have been... Well, well we, we crossed paths first in about, I think in about um, April or May. That's when we first crossed paths. And I just, for our listeners, gotcha. I'm just going to put some context here for this. Um, so Casey says he was nervous, but when I met him, he was one of the most confident people I've ever met in my life, and which is why I just I just gelled at that time. You know, in my job, I meet a lot of people, and people stand out. And I still remember you asking your questions with with confidence and not being afraid to say, "Hey, why? What about this? And what about that?" And um, that that still stands out to me today, ten years later. Um, just for some context, so I met you first in in I think April or May of that year. There. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I. I definitely started gaining a lot of confidence in, in the um, public speaking piece. I started off super nervous, but I, I guess like anything, if you just like embrace 
the uncomfortableness and look yeah. for areas of improvement and practice 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 it's like yeah. with any craft the more you do it the more confident you become um i think sometimes i internalize things where i i feel more nervous than i let on yeah. um which is, which I definitely I think, still get nervous. <laughs> which, which, which is a human trait, right? I, I've always, someone, one of my mentors told me it's, it's, it's good to get nervous. You know, when you get nervous, that means you're afraid to, to mess it up, which means you have some passion in it. Whereas if you're just ambivalent, ambivalent about it, you're like, I don't actually care what's going to happen, then you, there's anything for the wrong, the wrong reason. So, um, yeah, for those of you that are out there that are still nervous, it's okay to be nervous. It's totally okay. normal. It's okay to be nervous, <laughs> yeah. It's okay. And also, I think the big thing that you said is um, it's okay to, it's, it's good to try, fail, but also to listen to feedback. You know, feedback is, is probably the greatest gift that we have out there. And I think a, a lot of us, and myself included, we don't do anything because we're afraid of the feedback. But we're not afraid of the actual feedback. We're afraid of the tone that we're going to be getting, you know, because the same message can be told yeah. to you in two different ways. And when someone tells you the same message in a very nice way, you go, cool, awesome. But the same message tone with a, an aggressive or a negative mindset, those are the things that you fear and we just don't want to do anything about it. So um, I think that's an important so journey for them out there. Yeah, thanks for that. That's, that's a great, great nugget there. In, in, our, in our first 20 minutes, this is fantastic. <laughs> and I'd, I'd say that it strikes both ways, both yeah. in your ability to receive feedback, trying to be agnostic to the way it's delivered and focusing on the substance, but also hold in mind if you give somebody feedback, how can you deliver it in a way that isn't going to feel like an attack and the message of what you're actually trying to convey which most people i i'd be bold in saying comes from a place of love and good intent on just help wanting to help the person right 100%. but how do you frame it in a way that it's going to be better received by yeah. the person that you're talking to um and that that takes practice it also sometimes like personality types um or totally comes into play there's all sorts of nuances to that but it's it's definitely something that i I think about a lot, um, especially now as I'm building a team with my startup. Yeah, um, it's it's a very important thing. Yeah, and that's that, yeah, that's very true. And we can we can keep going to that there, but I want to swing into the lowest of the lows in that year that happened to you as well. Um, so here you are, Casey. You you're thriving in this community. You've been given this amazing um, responsibility, and you're taking that head on. And then life becomes unkind, a little bit unkind, if 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 that's a nice way to put it. It sure does. Um, yep. And on particular, the date would be the 8th of the 8th, 8th of August, 2012, um, where we, I lost my best friend. Um, alongside, there were, was a number of people, um, three lives that were, that were lost. There was a tragedy that happened where it was the Topic tragedy, where there was a school activity for Swatswood College, a PE trip, for the year 13 group where they were going to go, I believe, um, water rafting. But it's, it's actually a bit of an ironic start. Um, They're going to go uh, water rafting and there was a group of, I don't think it was a very big group of, of call it say 12, 12 students. My numbers here might be slightly off, but about 12 students. And the instructor only had the, um, the approval, if you will, to have, say, 11 of those students under his watch. And there was, there was one too many. So from a safety perspective, they made the call that as a, as a group, one of two things had to happen. Either one student couldn't participate in the water rafting or they had to change activity. And they decided as a group that 
well, we don't want anyone to have to sit out, so let's change activity. And what that resulted in is the decision to uh, climb around um, Paratutu in New Plymouth. Um, for those that aren't familiar with New Plymouth, um, Paratutu Rock, it sits on the waterfront of Back Beach. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and it's a, it's the, the top of um, a dormant volcano that it's the Sugarloaf Islands, which actually used to be the top of, of a volcano um, a long, long time ago. And they were rock climbing around it. But what happened was because it was a last minute decision, they didn't check the weather. And it was some of the biggest swells um, that were coming in for, for a very, very long time that New Plymouth had ever seen. And by the time that the swells really started kicking in, they were already committed to climbing around it. And there was um, a particular kind of part to it as you're climbing around the waterfront where it's a number of meters up off the, off the water. And you're meant to be able to just walk across without having clipped on with a carabiner um, because it's, it's not anticipated that there'd be waves there. Yeah. Um, and then when you get further along and you get closer to the water, um, then you clip on with a carabiner. Because the waves got so big, the students actually had to uh, run between sets of waves. And there was this particular uh, part that happened with, I was in, I had many close friends um, at, at Spotswood College. I was fortunate to have friends um, that close, but there were two in particular where we were a trio, um, Stephen Getty and, and Campbell Shaw. And we just would do everything together. Every day after school, we'd be at the beach or playing basketball or just getting up to mischief, um, just loving life. And I, I wasn't on this trip. Um, but the way I understand it is that Stephen and Campbell were at the front of the class um, and at the first in line to run around this corner where they had to go between the waves and clip on. Um, and it was a blind corner, so you couldn't actually see um, what, what was happening. And Stephen turned to the class and said, YOLO, which means you only live once. And then they both ran around the corner and a wave came and Campbell was able to clip on, but Stephen wasn't able to clip on in time and he was washed off the rocks. At this point, the class doesn't really know what's happening. And um, Johannes and Felipe, um, two international students that were also um, close friends within, the, within our year group, they ran around the corner. And same deal where Johannes... Was, was able to um, clip on, but Felipe wasn't. And Felipe got washed and dragged into the water. By now, the class realizes what's happening. Um, and the instructor, Bryce, jumped in the water in a futile attempt to look for them. Stephen was never seen again to this day. Bryce was never seen again to this day. And Felipe washed up a number of weeks later. And it fucking broke myself and many people within our year group um so it was the 8th of the 8th 2012 um pretty rough yeah no thank you for sharing that i i remember that that story at that time and um 
And I remember coming to see you a few weeks after that, and I could just see your shoulders was you were a different you were a different person. You were a very different person, and you can imagine why that would be why that would be. And um, and as a as and this this would have been tough for you because this was as you said your very your best friend, and you had to also hold the mantle of being a head boy at school at that time. How, how did that how did that go for you? I actually think it was one of the things that helped me get through it. Is yep. I. I felt that by being the head boy, it was my responsibility to, as you say, be the rock uh, for for the year group. Um, so I, I did my best to to shoulder that. Um, and I, th- I think through the process of trying to be there for others, it was actually in a in a weird way actually being there for myself. That me helping others grieve helped me grieve. Um, I, I definitely, I'm not one to normally cry, but the I vividly remember it, it was particularly around when you would see a friend that that mutually when you Stephen um I, I wasn't blessed to know Felipe very well um but Stephen I I was I would I was with every day like not exaggerating just like every day would be either playing Xbox or shooting hoops or just at the beach like every day we'd go to the beach after school and would be together um so I was very very close friends um and what would always particularly break me would be when we saw a mutual friend, whether it was a teacher or a, a friend from our year group or someone that I hadn't seen since it had happened. And then you'd see them for the first time since it had happened and you just looked at each other and it just brought all the emotion back. Um, and I made an effort of trying to touch base and, and see how everyone was doing. Um, so it was a, a very emotionally charged time period but I, I I honestly feel that trying to be there for other people to what extent I was successful at that um I think we all banded together so I, I don't think I was particularly special at being a rock but I, I think the process of trying to help others really helped me um yeah and I mean even things like the of course like the news picked it up as of course it yeah. would happen um and I, I just even remember vividly moments of like at Back Beach, there's a there's the sand dune, the Back Beach sand dune, massive sand dune that goes to the base of of Paratutu and the Sugar Live Islands. And I remember being there with I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen close friends that were all grieving, and and a reporter showed up, um, just trying to ask question after question after question and and figure out what was they, they, the the reporter knew that we were the friend group sort of thing and asking questions. And to be fair to the reporter, just actually trying to do their job and trying to understand what was happening but I remember I'm I'm usually quite a patient person but I remember getting quite assertive in that situation and telling him to leave and and give us space to grieve so there was different types of leadership I had to step up into in regards to also helping protect people's boundaries totally because it's such a sensitive sensitive thing or even things like um as a group, we wanted to, as our year 13 group, we wanted to walk down along the coast um, looking for, for our friends um, and having to call that off and convince, I was largely one that had, to be fair, had instigated it, but then um, in reflection and guidance of some close teachers that the last thing that we wanted to do was put a whole lot of emotionally unstable um, <laughs> friends yeah. on the, the 
in potentially dangerous way yeah. if the tides for whatever reason was and i'm sure we would have been fine on how we navigated it but it's like still not a situation we wanted to put ourselves in yeah. and so then like being torn between kind of like nah screw that i want to find my friend to also being like well no let's actually look out for everyone and look after the safety of everyone so there's like different nuances of leadership as well as like personal grief that that was happening but yeah it was it was a challenging period um I I now have a, a tattoo of of an S on my back for Stephen, um, and it's got an an infinity loop at, at the base of it. It's a dragon on my back in the shape of an S. Um, so I, I carry Stephen with me every day. Um, there are particular songs that trigger our friendship memories um, yeah. and all that sort of good stuff. Um, I'm I'm still close with his family. His, um, the, the Getty family are an incredible group of people um, that I see as my family. I, I try my best to visit when when I'm up. Um, I'm not up to New Plymouth as much as I, I used to be, as I was, I'd like to be. But New Plymouth is a special place for me because it was when I, like kind of reflecting on the start of the conversation, it's where I turned a new leaf. I yeah. went from being a bit of a dropkick, not going to school much, having potential but not really doing much with my life to really um, trying to excel in different areas of leadership and and both from attendance to academics to actual leadership and, and that sort of thing so i it's a place of reimagination for my for my own identity but then it's also mixed with author also my place of birth yeah. that i moved away from and moved back to as well as like literally the highest highs of my life and the lowest lows of my life all in one place so it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it is it is a it is a space that um, that hold memories no matter what the memories are with their their with their emotionally powerfully charged emotionally negatively charged. It is it is a place that is um that is going to be special for you for so many reasons. And um you know thank you for sharing that because even ten years on I can still see the emotion and you know the the passion that you have for your friends and what happened that time there. Um, and I remember that vividly because I was in New Plymouth the week after this happened and I still remember coming to the school the week after because that's when we normally come in and um, and that's when I saw you and because the other thing is amongst all this is happening this is a stage of your life when all the universes are now contacting you and you have to that's right that. so you know you, your plate is going to be like hey I've here I am as, as a young person that's lost a friend here I am as a head boy that's that's trying to do my best for my community and my year and my and my group I'm also a son to, to a father who's who's seeing his son going through this. Um, and now I've also got to still think about the next year, you know, and all this is on is on your shoulders at that time there. So um, you know, so that would have been pretty turbulent for you, but also all the expectations from intrinsically and externally that will be on, on your shoulders. But again, you're still academically, you're academically very, very successful in year 12, and all the universities are saying to you, hey. We're going to give you some money. Come to us. How was how was that for you in terms of in terms of in, on one in in one angle you're like oh life is really short and the other angle is my life is still is just actually starting in, in, in a way. Yeah. So how, how how did you feel about that? You know, if you can remember that. Yeah, I can. And the word you use is, is completely correct, which is expectations. I I remember also quite vividly the narrative was not what are you doing after year 13 it was what university are you going to yeah so there was a very strong implicit um expectation on on that and 
to be fair, that's what I wanted to do. I did want to go to university as well. Um, so it aligned with aligned up with my narrative of, of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. But you're right that you've got like this life so short, you've just lost someone so close to you and, and truly appreciating being present to also looking at like, we're still teenagers. Like we're <laughs> like we're yeah, yeah. looking at, at starting um, the next chapter of after school. What's that look like and, and university and that sort of stuff. Um, at this at this point, I from a, maybe a career perspective, maybe more of an outlook on life. I I definitely become increasingly passionate about over over the number of years of my life. At this point, I, I become increasingly passionate about wanting to make a difference in the world having like this this base level of a foundational um, framework, which was that I genuinely believe the intent of most people is, is, is good yeah. and that people can, you can, when bad things happen, it's often good people in shit situations, yeah. but in, intrinsically, most people are actually good people. So I, holding that in mind, I've always been a believer in trying to make a difference. Um, and then like with my experience of turning a new leaf, all that sort of stuff, what that, le- what that left me landing on was I wanted to do something as a profession where I could make a difference in the lives of others. And at the time I was torn between two different directions. One was the legal system of getting involved in the legal system, perhaps the lawyer to try and um, fight injustices or get involved in bringing through regulations that could that could help um, people, planet um, side of things. And the other side was very much on looking at the environmental aspects of the world through um, geography and the, the ramifications of oil and gas and, and the, the, the whole narrative around that. So those are the two things that were kind of going through my mind. And where I landed on was to study both geology and law. Um, I'd also been possibly a little bit biased in what university I wanted to go to and that I lived in Dunedin. Um, but also through just the positive narratives that I had from people I did know that went through Otago, uh, just spoke so highly of it as a place that transformed them as individuals, both intellectually on what they studied, but also just as people and the experiences you go through going to, going to Otago. So for me, while there was an expectation of uni, it was I'd already decided that Otago was, was the university that I wanted to go to, um, and I'm glad I did. So what that led to was can I can I just stop you there? Because I remember I remember this really blatantly, really because you had the offer, you were coming to Otago, you had a scholarship. And I remember you called me in November or December of the year and you said to me, What do I do? Because I've been given a job offer to work at a at an oil yeah. and gas oil and gas firm. And I just remember this conversation because you're like, now what do I do? Because you had money in the bank coming there and you also had this offer here. Do you remember that right. the conversation I, that we had? I do remember that. So I yeah. So ironically, um, studying at Otago University with scholarships, where one of the the core focuses was on geology to better understand the planet and try and have a positive impact on the planet. And then I got this job offer to work in oil and gas where I was going to be starting on a $90,000 salary, which like for a a 19-year-old, I'm like, holy shit, that's like before tax just under 2000 a week <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the jackpot right really it's like the jackpot at that time yeah 
crazy amounts and also um like with oil and gas it doesn't stop there it like yeah. it goes up and up and up um so I, I was definitely in the conundrum of actually having those options in front of me um but ultimately I decided that I wanted to take a bet on myself um and what I could do within the, the scope of change opposed to uh opportunity I had right in front of me yeah and off you came you came to Dunedin and what was that like for you it was incredible like yeah. definitely some of the fondest memories I have and the funnest memories um are, are of Otago so coming to Dunedin um some context there uh that's where my mum lives and I had family there as well including my sister and, and some others um which I have a great relationship with so being able to kind of come home to like my second home my homes are kind of like New Plymouth is my place of birth but Dunedin I spent the most of my life growing up so and there's also this kind of like weird sense of coming back to an old stomping ground that I hadn't done very well in but with a reimagined personal brand on wanting to be a role model to my peers around me that previously had gone in different directions so there's kind of like a an interesting kind of narrative happening there but I just I just had a fantastic time I um I was fortunate enough to get accepted into Arana College. Um, some may hold that against me. There's, <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> starting university, every time you'd go out into town, um, there'd be funny chants for all sorts of things, depending on what the celebrations were at the time. But one of them was um, not pleasant towards Arana, which was more of like in fun spirit mocking the fact that I think a lot of people wanted to get into Arana, um, but it was it was a bit of a running joke anyway. But I, I made some incredible friends there, and it was a very supportive um, place to be. Very close to campus as well. Um, yeah, so I started off with a um, with a raw, but ultimately, what what unfolded relatively quickly, which was the the negative undercurrent, was. I'd also picked up a bit of a drinking problem, if I'm going to be honest. Um, and it was not just because Otago is a great place to have a drink, which it is. Um, it was because I was suffering. I was still struggling from the loss of Stephen. Um, and I mean, to be honest, New Zealand, while I think the narrative is actually changing, there is a drinking problem in New Zealand. And I was particularly good at that drinking problem. So I, I over-indexed on drinking before going down. Um, and then I continued that trend in Otago um, more than I should have. And while I had initial success in my studies, ultimately um, I was unhappy and I was still broken as a person. And one of the hardest things I... I um, had to make the decision on was I, I felt so grateful for the scholarships and the support that I genuinely felt blessed to have and I had to ultimately pull the pin on on my study um, because I was suffering so much um, and I I wasn't ready to give it my best because this like because holding in mind as well we, we, we're talking like four months after yeah, this has happened 100%, like yeah. this is this is 8th of 8th of, like, so 8th of um, August, eighth, then yeah. August, and then going into um, January, February, yeah. back off. So, had a lot of fun, <laughs> um, 
in regards to just meeting wonderful people and people that were also ambitious and wanting to change the world and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately ended up returning to New Plymouth um, probably six months later um, for a little bit of time. I, I ended up moving in and going flatting with Campbell, um, so the other best friend from the trio, finding myself um, and ultimately going back to university after that. With a different focus now, right? With a different focus. Yep, different focus. I, I also did some reflecting and I came to the conclusion that the world is driven by enterprise and it's the most powerful vehicle for change, enterprise for business. But we, the people, actually influence the success of any enterprise. The only reason any company succeeds at scale and survives is because we vote with our money and we spend money on that thing and we reinforce that. The reason there's about 39,000 McDonald's around the world is because we spend money at McDonald's. If everyone stopped spending money at McDonald's, they'd go out of business. In the same way that when a cafe pops up and everyone loves it and goes, they're humming, they do well, and sometimes they open a second cafe. But if they didn't choose the right street and they don't get a lot of foot traffic and they don't get many customers, they end up shutting down. The, the, the correlation and causation there is where the people are spending their money. Yeah. Um, so while enterprise has this enormous impact on the world, it's ultimately where we spend our money that directly influences um, the success of different enterprises. And then I, holding that in mind, I also came to the conclusion that enterprises can be a powerful vehicle for a positive change. Like there's a negative narrative quite often around um, enterprise, but I, I think it can be a very powerful one as well. And I, I think there are plenty of examples of where that's happening. I mean, Tesla is a great example, which has completely revolutionized the priority around EVs for um, all automakers. And there's plenty of examples that we can go into like that. Um, so I became very inspired by enterprise um, and decided that while I was passionate about the legal system and trying to drive change through there, I felt that I could be more nimble and have personally, it would be better aligned for me to have impact um, by getting involved with business. So I returned to Otago University um, in 2014. So this is about a year after. So I started university in 2013, the first time around, um, and then went back to New Plymouth around halfway through that year, and then returned to Otago a year later, mid-2014, for studying international business. Yeah. And, and so, and while you're doing that, you also started, you started to, to work in your own space. You started to realize actually there's some things you could do while you were studying. Is that correct? Or was that just purely, when did you, when did you start getting into the whole startup world and starting up your own little initiatives? Yeah, so it was about six months after yeah. I'd started studying um, at Otago for international business. There was, there was a number of kind of different factors that happened, but one of them in particular was I'd always had the mindset of, um, well, always, since I started studying international, I had the mindset of get my degree, and then with that, I'm going to be able to go either do an MBA uh, or start a company or start driving change. But the first step, get my degree. But what ended up happening was about the end of that year, some people may recall that there was this thing called Gigatown, a campaign that happened around the country called Gigatown. And it was a competition for what city would be the first to get uh, gigabit speed, a gigabyte a second speed, installed for the whole city to utilize 
uh, and they would get it first for a couple of years as the pilot by a company called Chorus. I think it was owned by Arctel. Um, it would be rolled out there first before everyone else. And there's huge advantages of, of having such fast internet. And Dunedin was uh, fortunate enough for the hard work of many, many people, including um, people like Heidi Renata, who's an incredible yeah. human being based in Dunedin as well, that Dunedin won and got, and got this. And part of the package of, of that was not just that Dunedin had higher speed internet rolled out, but there was $700,000 of funding that would be given away as grants to different initiatives, 200,000 of which would be given to startups um, that wanted to do a venture that could utilize the benefits of fast internet. So it was to create use, like you could look at it from a business lens, it was to create case studies of amazing things that can happen if you like roll out fast internet. Yeah, totally. So that was kind of like the, the thing that sat behind it. Um, but 200 allocated for that, 200K allocated for that and 500,000 allocated for uh, community initiatives that aren't really startups, but um, benefit the community and again, kind of utilize high-speed internet. So that got me thinking, well, let's, um, let's apply for that. Let's, let's pull together um, a venture that would be impactful and try to kick it off. Um, and this was around December of 2014, coming into 2015. Um, Long story short, we didn't get the funding. Um, we I, through that process, though, I learned a lot of skills. Of um, I recruited a team of their by Aina partnering with um, a guy named Alex Robinson, who's still a close friend. Um, he now lives in Brisbane, and we built out a team of maybe five, five or six people. I was working literally from a friend, Nigel Westbrook, his, working from his garage that was leaky. So like I'd come in and like my my little desk that I had was just like, like a huge puddle of water next to where my laptop was or like it was, it was a pretty funny dynamic. Um, but nonetheless, we were working from then. We had this initiative, it's called Green Data, where we wanted to build a data center based in Dunedin so that the ping time or the latency of using uh, other countries' data centers was significantly reduced. It does make sense in regards to like a, the, the advantages you gain of having a data center um, so close or like within New Zealand at yeah. scale. But keyword scale is the part where it falls apart because the market of New Zealand being only about 5 million strong didn't really make sense for the cost that would be required to actually set up such a data center infrastructure. And green um, was uh, the fact that we authentically wanted to run this data center, which data centers are intensive on energy for, for those that may not be aware. Um, and we wanted to run it on clean energy. Yep. So yep. that's, that's where things started kicking off. And I got involved um, in, I guess, in February 2015, there was something happening in Dunedin called Startup Weekend. I, I don't know if, if, if the folks listening on this um, are familiar with Startup Weekend, but it's, it's essentially a weekend-long event where anyone can rock up to it and they pitch an idea on the Friday night or listen to ideas on Friday night if you don't want to pitch. And then you form teams on the Friday night, usually teams of like four to five people, and you get a whole lot of mentorship where you build it into a business by the end of the weekend. So you spend all of Saturday validating the idea and trying to figure out what makes sense on what you're doing going through pivots, which is where you'll have a, an assumption of what you should be doing that you 
ultimately realize is incorrect, but then you uncover an opportunity that you didn't before understand or, or see, and then you kind of pivot into the, the different direction. You go through this kind of rapid iteration cycles um, and with the guidance of mentors that have done this sort of thing. And you just learn so much, both from like a business development perspective, a design perspective, if there's someone like coding it up or building it, there's like different kind of roles that people take on. And then by the end of the Sunday night, there's uh, a judging ceremony where they bring in successful startup founders that can um, hear what you've done. And then uh, there's a whole bunch of different winners and prizes that are that are awarded. But holy shit, it's a transformational thing to go through. <laughs> um, and, and what happened was I wasn't aware of it. I, at this time, I was, as I mentioned, working from this, this leaky garage, which I was still grateful to have because it was a space I could work from. Um, I was getting some light support from the city council uh, for the initiatives that they had set up at the time. Can I, can I just stop you? Were you, were you studying at this time or did you stop studying now? I was still studying. Okay, cool. Yep. So just put context, still. studying and still working. So this is awesome. Yeah, cool. And um, ultimately what ended up happening though was um, Nigel and Alex just seen the words Google as a sponsor on the startup weekend event that was happening. And they were kind enough to buy me a ticket. I didn't even know about this weekend. So they, they just bought me a ticket saying, hey, this Friday, <laughs> this is a ticket, <laughs> go to it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that looks pretty intense, but let's do it. So I I pitched the whole green data idea uh, and then recruited a team uh, of, of people to work on the idea with me uh, throughout the weekend. And ultimately through that um we invalidated the idea pretty quickly with the, the hive mentality of different mentors, um, some of which actually had put extensive thinking into such a proposition that we were able to unpack things quite quickly. But what we did land on is like the intent we wanted to have was a positive impact on the environment while like I'm having like a green data center while making it better for businesses to be able to, um, to interact with data that they'd upload or download. But what we landed is that the actual intent we wanted to really, that we really cared about was having an impact on the way businesses operated and using something that came from like authentically trying to make a difference for the environment. And the common narrative we, we were picking up from the business owners that were mentors at this event were they cared about trying to be sustainable, but they didn't really know what that looked like in the context of their business. It was very kind of opaque and just difficult to, it was very intangible for a lot of them. So that's where we realized, holy shit, the people care. This kind of goes back to the one of the axioms or beliefs I mentioned before that I, yep. I think people have baseline good intention. People care, but they just don't even know what to do. They don't know what actions to take and that sort of thing. So green data pivoted or more completely rebooted into another venture, uh, which I ended up working on that startup for about three years. And that, that startup was called GEAR which was an acronym for Global Environmental Impact Assessment, also play on words with Gaia. And the, the whole business model of what we did was we had a leaderboard of businesses based on their, their carbon impact. And we would help businesses measure what their carbon impact was. And then we would reward consumers for shopping with the businesses that were on that leaderboard. So the idea is that the, as, a, as a person, you could type in cafe in Dunedin and or wherever you are, and you'd see in proximity to where you're willing to go, all the cafes listed in order of carbon um, activity or, or how well they stacked up relative to their size. So you'd be like, okay, this cafe is authentically 
trying their best. I'm going to spend my money and support them. So it was a way to actually incentivize consumers to um, vote with their money to drive change in the world. And at the same time, make it easy for businesses that authentically were trying to change to get more customers so that they were, they'd be in a better position to succeed. So we got about 100, ultimately about 120 businesses engaging with us, over a thousand consumers using our app. Um, we managed to get a little bit of um, money behind us to do that. I was also very fortunate in that the mission that we stood for, we attracted an incredible um, team of, of volunteers, essentially, where we'd put in 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks every week trying to get this off the ground and pitching it at different competitions and um, just trying to get the word out there. The, the learnings that I gained were just phenomenal. Um, but, but what ended up happening was the pressure of, of trying to be the founder and CEO of this like tech startup um, at now I guess now I'd be 21 years old at the time and doing university was, I, I was being stretched too thin. Yep, totally. So I made the um, decision to drop out of university for a second time, um, but benefiting nonetheless still from the support of the university um, in regards to faculty that I'd built relationships with and with uh, friends and students that I'd, I'd built relationships as well with. Um, I guess what I kind of have neglected to mention, um, which starts to thread into what I'm doing now is during that time, I also fell in love with community building. So in 2015, I participated in Startup Weekend, but from the next year onward, I got heavily involved in running Startup Weekends and ultimately I got involved in running facilitating startup weekends across the country there's different roles in startup weekend there's like a participant you go through it as as a participant there's like crew which kind of organize and make sure food arrives you've got the venue and the sponsorship and there's a lot of work that sits behind the scenes on making that happen there's mentors which are like go around the event and help people and give expertise and ask good questions to kind of drill drill into what they're doing and then you've got facilitators which are kind of like the the mcs of the event that that kind of help keep everyone on track and if there's any difficult things they kind of handle those situations but just give the whole give the energy to the event it's it's an incredible thing to be able to be in a position to do if anyone ever does get involved in that um so but I, I fell in love with community building through there and both in the community building for um the mentors and the participants but also working very closely with building leaders um within the crew of the organizers because yeah, one of the things that is really tough to do is succession planning yeah. and, and something like um any volunteer capacity usually there'll be leaders that uh have taken a lot of responsibility on and they do a phenomenal job at what they're doing but if they leave quite often it leaves the organization up shit creek because it's like there's so much context and relationships and stuff that they hold yeah. so there's a real art and kind of leaders building leaders where you help the next kind of generation coming through to pick up the mantle before you leave <laughs> so it's a smooth transition so I, I i just fell in love with that space um did that at the same time trying to make payroll for my team at gear my startup was yep. was tough we didn't have a lot of money flowing through um but nonetheless there's still expenses of like rent and food and all life stuff right so yep, totally, that um, totally um so what I ended up doing was I, I got my hustle on where 
we also needed a space to work like we want really wanted an office and at this I, I, up to this point I'd mentioned that I'd been working from like a leaky garage um it was through startup weekend I discovered the concept of co-working spaces oh, yeah. which at the time weren't that kind of yeah. popularized That's right, I was yeah. like holy shit I can be in a building with other people creating businesses it's <laughs> like, yeah. so good um so there's a place called the distiller it's now called uh the startup space well it's, it used to be called the startup space now it's called the distiller um and it's a university building which is part of an organization called startup dunedin it's if, for those um involved in going to dunedin living in dunedin or know someone in dunedin that's involved in entrepreneurialism startup dunedin is incredible and it's comprised of the support of the university the city council otago polytechnic and a number of successful entrepreneurs um, and they they had the space the startup space at the time that i started working from and it was just incredible having this, this kind of energy and other people building things anyway i really wanted an office and i noticed that there was an office that just had a bunch of boxes in it and was doing nothing and i convinced the community manager jason beck um who's, who's a phenomenal dude he now lives in auckland convinced jason beck that i would take the rubbish out once a week and clean the coffee machine if i could have the office for free Brilliant. and he didn't want to do those tasks so i managed to score us score us an office um and then what ended up happening was i over time got more and more involved in helping him with with his role he kind of taught me a lot of different things from like from a running an event perspective um, and got heavily involved and ultimately he left to Auckland and I stepped into the role as the community manager for Startup Dunedin and both was running my startup as well as working closely with trying to build out the startup ecosystem for Dunedin. Which is really, really cool. I think there's a, a, a lovely thread that, that, that flows through this whole conversation is if you don't ask, you don't get you know, you you asked your history teacher, and you did it. Yep. You asked you asked Jason, "Hey, the worst you could say was no, and that didn't happen." So you know, um, you use the word hustle there, but I think it's just you getting out there and asking the question, and and it goes back yep. to feedback, right? The feedback was, "Yep, yeah, cool, here we go." So that's awesome. So you had these two hats on, and then um, you finished up with your time in Dunedin, and then um, you moved up to Wellington. Is that correct? Or... Yep, yep, that's that's correct from a timeline perspective. Yep. Um, I, I guess like wrapping up the, the gear thing, um, ultimately, while we had good intent to change the world, um, the business model didn't make sense. There were some technical challenges that were more systemic than stuff we could just build. So we made the hard decision to, to shelve it um, and take the learnings forward into new ventures that we did. I then went full-time running Startup Dunedin and, and spent a couple of years um, setting up an incubator. Um, I, I, was, I was very blessed to have a fellow named Angus Pauley um, start working for Gear, who then transitioned to working directly with me as the assistant community manager of Startup Dunedin. So we were kind of like a power team of two for a, for a long period of time. Um, we, uh, yeah, we, we ran all sorts of different startup events and built out community and, and some incredible things there. And then the team started to expand and um, Rachel Butler ended up joining the team, another phenomenal person. And at that intersect, um, my, my partner, Hina, uh, graduated university. She had been studying um, a degree in computer science with a, a minor in marketing. And she got a job at KPMG, which was to be based in Wellington. And 
she had to come up and be based here if she wanted the role. Startup Dunedin isn't really a remote role. It's like got to be in Dunedin to run Startup Dunedin, which makes sense. So I made the decision that I would step away from that um, into the unknown and um, move up to Wellington so that Hina could take her job. So what I then did was I decided I'd start a marketing agency. I'd been experimenting with drop shipping. I don't know if anyone on the call is familiar with drop shipping, but essentially it is where you have a storefront, you have some products that people can, you run social media ads where people can purchase your product. And if they purchase it, it orders one unit from something like um, AliExpress and ships it directly to them, uh, but with the names that they entered in. And the, the real benefit of that model is you don't have to hold any stock or hold any risk of stock that doesn't move. The downside is that your margins suck. Like you make nearly no money off it, especially if you like when you consider running ads. Because um, the, the lower the entry point on anything, the more people that are going to do it, the more people that do it, then you reach like um, perfect competition, which yep. actually just dries up margins. Um, so there's that and the other side was um the 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 delivery time of products to people wasn't very competitive relative to something like amazon so i i cut my teeth on doing that where i was i was turning over thousands of dollars worth of like i was, <laughs> I was like selling galaxy duvets into the us um i don't know why but i just like there's a weird niche that i was just like yeah i wonder if this works yeah. um and it did but margins weren't very good but nonetheless i ended up um been fortunate enough to transfer my knowledge of digital marketing into helping companies that had established products but they needed to get it in front of people so i lived um, about a year and a half traveling the world with my laptop where i helped different companies i had one company in particular that was uh, a really big company based in melbourne but had has a number of subsidiaries or uh, businesses underneath them that are based here in new zealand and I run all the Google ads and Facebook ads and I had some good success. Like um, we took one of their product offerings from about 60,000 in um, monthly revenue up to 180,000 in monthly Whoa. revenue. So we, we're talking about like some, they were happy. They, they, they got yeah. some good results from that. Um, so I did that, traveled the, the, the world a little bit from my laptop Um went and seen Hena's got family in India so we we went through and I was, I was went through the golden triangle with her and, and met some family there um and then ultimately came back to Wellington but I was getting a little bit unsettled and itchy feet because while I was enjoying the marketing from like the the outcomes I was getting I wasn't passionate about it yeah and I wanted to get back in the startup scene so um, this is probably now we're talking probably 2019, 2019. Is, is where we've like, I've done the, the whole marketing agency and traveling piece. Um, and then this role comes up um, for an organization called Kiwi Landing Pad. For those that aren't familiar with Kiwi Landing Pad, I, probably a lot of people were familiar with Silicon Valley. So it's like the, the epicenter for technology um, on the west coast of the US in California, um, just south of San Francisco, uh, right next to um, Stanford. So, so essentially what happened is during the internet boom, 
there was a lot of innovation that came out of Stanford. So it kind of became the place before the internet had taken off, it became the place if you really wanted to find talent that could work on engineering, computer engineering, that was kind of the place you found the talent. Yeah. And as a result, that's also where when you're starting a startup, the kind of try not be too scatterbrained because there's so many important nuances that kind of feed into why Kiwi Landing Pad who I end up working for is important. But essentially when you're starting a startup, the difference, it's important to consider a definition difference between a startup versus a, a business that's starting up. Yeah. A startup is typically a bit of a Venn diagram between innovation, momentum, and scalability. More if we just focus on the innovation and scalability. Um, well, in, yeah, innovation, scalability, momentum is more of a sub- subjective thing of moving quickly. Yeah. But innovation and scalability and usually what happens with a lot of software innovation is you'll spend enormous amounts of money in the beginning getting it right adding value finding something called product market fit that's a loaded term that there's a lot that sits behind that but it's you spend a lot of money before you make much money similar kind of concept to what happened with gear is we we spend a lot of money without making a lot of money yeah um eventually if you get it right and most startups won't you'll hit a hockey stick where you, you can start scaling this. And and because the cool thing about some software is it's really hard to get it right. But once you get it right, you can just sell it to everyone because yeah. like your code will just same. work for everybody. That's right, it's yeah. the same code, you're just duplicating it. Um, so what that translates to is that quite often for a startup to succeed, they need capital. They need money injected into their business that can pay these phenomenal engineers to actually build it in the first place. And they need to do this at a time where they're not making any money. And if the people that created the companies, the founders don't have, um, capital. they're not wealthy, they don't have the cap- personal capital, which I didn't, and most founders when they first start off don't, then it's kind of like, well, how do you get around that? So that's where investors drop a whole lot of capital into these startups for a percentage of the business um, and say, go for it, build, build, your, um, build your startup. So it used to be that in order to find the right talent and in order to find the capital, it was largely... Uh, concentrated in Silicon Valley and up into San Francisco. Kiwi Landing Pad uh, was founded by an incredible person. He's based in Maryland, his name's John Holt, where he had a successful startup, realized that he kind of had to, well, he's selling into the San Francisco. He's on a plane every week to go back and forth. Um, His startup ended up getting acquired or bought out by um, a company called Cornerstone. Um, So he had quite a financial windfall from that. And he wanted to make it easier for future founders that were in the same position that he was in, where they had to go back and forth to Silicon Valley or San Francisco. And quite often what would happen is you'd, as a, as a Kiwi, you'd fly over to San Francisco because it's where you had to be to have these relationships. But you'd be like, you'd land, you'd be like, what do I do now? Where do I go? Like, do I go to a cafe and just try and cold call people? So Kiwi Landing Pad was... Um, one of the first co-working spaces in San Francisco. And like, as the name kind of suggests, Kiwi Landing Pad, it, would be, it was the place that you went when you first landed, to, landed into the US and San Francisco and you could connect with other entrepreneurs, usually Kiwi entrepreneurs that were trying to make their dreams come true um, and grow their, their businesses. That became um, a global community of founders and entrepreneurs for about 5,000 strong. Um, John being there from the start, there were a number of people that were involved in different roles of actually running it on a day-to-day basis. 
I think, though, it'd be fair to say most significantly, um, the person that was there for the longest, other than John, was a lady named Shan Simpson, who's an absolute world-class community builder and built it into the community of the 5,000 founders and Fantastic. entrepreneurs and investors. So um, she ended up leaving in 2019 after about five years of running it and, m- and moving on to start something called Public Rally, where she now works with incredible other brands like Michelle Dickinson with Nano Girl and a bunch of others building community. That's what she does because she's amazing at it. And at this point, I've got startup history. I'm so passionate about startups. I've been traveling the world um, doing this digital marketing. And the conclusion I've landed on is I want to go to San Francisco and start a startup. So at the same time that this is happening, this is kind of like June, July um, in 2019, um, I have a friend reach out and say, hey, Kiwi Landing Pad is um, on the on the quiet looking for someone to step into um, the role that Sean Simpson had. So I ended up um, going through a number of kind of coffee interviews with John and, and being fortunate enough to get this role where I was going to be spending a good chunk of time in San Francisco and a good chunk of time in New Zealand and bridging the two ecosystems. This is in 2019. Um, <laughs> you know where this is going. Yeah, um, so I, the, the, world, the world changed. So yeah. I, was, I was meant to actually fly out on like a, in early 2020, I was meant to fly out on something like a, I think it was like a Thursday or something I was meant to be flying out. And having to cancel it on like the Wednesday night because the, the huge change that um that made the difference was I was going to a, something called SASTA, which was like this this giant software event where all sorts of tech leaders come and it would have been an amazing way for me to kind of like jump jumpstart my sure. network into San Francisco. Um but all the key keynote speakers started pulling out and guests started pulling out. And then the the huge change as I remember it was that San Francisco was declared a state of emergency where if you came as a foreigner after the fact that they had declared that your insurance became null and void. Yep. So I was like, oh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an expensive place to get sick in America. Expensive place. Very expensive place to get sick yeah. insurance. Yeah. So that made that an easier decision. A sad one, yeah. but an easy one. Yeah. So that was that, at that point in time. And well, you, you, so you still stay with Kiwi Landing Pad during, during the lockdown and that would have been an interesting time for you as well. Yeah, like it's it's such a phenomenal, it's a non-profit. It's yeah. um, funded by a number of people. Um, originally kicked off with John and Sam Morgan who um, helped found, well, founded Trade Me, yeah. uh, supported by, in the early days, even Peter Thiel who was co-founded yeah. with Elon Musk um, with, with PayPal and now Palantir he runs. Um, he's no longer involved but was involved in the early days. And then still to this day, it's supported by a number of um, incredible organizations, including Stephen Tyndall. Um, so Stephen Tyndall, I uh, think people um, throughout organizations like New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, Amazon Web Services, BNZ, yep. um, Jasmine Enterprise, I believe it's called. Um, there, there's a number of supporters that have just like understood the the benefit of creating community around founders that are trying to build great businesses. So in the early days, some extra context is like Kiwi Lanypad helped house things like Zero, like oh, when they yeah. were first in like trying to get up and running in San Francisco um, or Vend with Vaughn Ferguson. Yeah. Um, companies that like Zero is worth more than $20 billion now. Vend exited, got bought out for about 500 million. Like some of the, the original sort of um, New Zealand success stories 
we'll there's a relationship yeah. where Kiwi Lanif had played a, a small role, but nonetheless an important role in being like that that launch pad in a place you could be in San Francisco. And uh, what it ended up doing though, through the leadership of Sean is it turned into a more than just a co-working space, it became a community. Yeah. Um, so then when I took on the mantle in 2019, coming into 2020, even though I could no longer get to San Francisco, the community was still, still there. Yeah, vibrant. Yeah. Yeah. So then my role became about how do you engage and activate and support a thriving community when it's all online? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm still involved with so Kiwi Landing has now been rebranded to Territory Three. Um, and I'm still involved with Territory Three to this day. It's, it's now run by um, my successor. Lilia Alexander, um, who's a phenomenal person. She, I don't know if you know Wellington Live, the Facebook page, um, which has had enormous success. So she started that um, and, and recently uh, sold it and is involved with a number of, of different kind of influencer marketing campaigns and that sort of thing. But she's now stepping in the role as community builder for Territory 3, but I'm involved as a founder in residence. So I'm now running my own new venture, but I'm involved with connecting different founders and, and supporting um, people involved. Oh, this this is awesome. I mean, we could keep talking for a very long time, and um, it's, it's almost one and a half hours. Um, but I just I just want I just want to bring it bring it home very very um, succinctly. I guess one of the key things that I've noticed in this whole this whole conversation is that it's always come back to community, you know, um, and and your intrinsic appeal to help people. You know, from the time that you you came back to New Plymouth, you know, you were with the well, you were with the wrong people at the time at Dunedin, but. You came back, you, you shifted a little bit and you were like, cool, I need to make the first step, which is actually I've just got to go to school and get 100%. And I just need to go to school. That's all I'm going to do. Then you found your calling to help people. And then, you know, you did some stuff while you were at school. You built a community at school. You had some very close friends. You went through the highest of the highest, the lowest of the lowest. But, and all the time you had community. You came to Dunedin. You realized that this is awesome, a great place. And again, you met a lot of amazing people. But again, you had self, self-awareness to go, actually, this is not the right place to make this right, right time because I was going through my thing. And again, your community got you through and you found your community because you went back home, you lived with your best friend, um, and then you started your ventures. And, you know, the, the key thing, I mean, there's some amazing things you've done, and, you know, I'm just brushing this over very lightly. But for me, the, the key thing that I've seen, too, is the people that have, that have been around you the whole time and your growth to actually make, make the world a better place through whatever it was, you know. Because, you know, the one thing that you said to me when you're doing the, the digital marketing, you, you made money, but you could see it wasn't, it was no passion. This was just you doing it just because it was a means to an end. And um, mm. even when you're speaking, you're like, okay, cool. I did it. That's all cool. Made a bit of money. But when you went back to speak about your Kiwi landing pad, a whole change in your, in your vibrancy just changed. So, um, you know, I think I think what's important for listeners out there is that, you know, everyone here has, knows intrinsically what they what their values are. And when things are not, when, you, when you're not vibing, you should trust that that non-vibe and go right. Cool. Hey, what what actually makes you vibe and go back to that? I know that's a very quick summary of all the awesome stuff you said to me, but um, that's what comes up to me as as I listen to your story, um, which I which I which I think is pretty amazing. And I'm I'm very lucky to have met you a few times during this time here. And I still remember when I met you in Wellington when you moved up for your job and how excited you were to start off at Kiwi Landing Pad, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, like I said, we, we could keep talking, um, but that that'll be uh. I think we'll put our, our, our listeners to sleep at the moment because um, we like to keep things on for an hour or so. But, you know, you've shared tons and tons and tons of nuggets through this whole conversation, um, Casey. 
our our podcast is called Bosses of Knowledge. And if there's one piece of knowledge you'd like to share to our listeners, what would that be through your through your amazing experiences of all the different things you've gone through? I think it's following where your passion is because you're going to wake up energized. You're going to spend all day thinking about it. You're going to think about it in all sorts of different contexts. And not only are you going to get fulfillment and enjoyment out of it, but you're also going to do a better job at, at what that thing is. Um, I, I guess it kind of ties to a, a thread that you mentioned at the start, which is the, the swap between the life's short, but also you've got your whole life ahead of you. Um, and if you work on something you're passionate about, I think it hits both. You can live life now in a way that is meaningful, but it's also going to open up all sorts of incredible opportunities for you. Um, I think one of the hard things is sometimes you don't know what your passion is. So I think that's where exploring um, different areas that you think you could be passionate about becomes important. But then being real with yourself that you might start exploring something and say, hey, I'm doing pretty well at this, but I'm not passionate about it. And I'd encourage those people to making sure that you're not it's not just um sometimes you have days where you don't feel as good about something that's a very normal thing i even have that with my startup now which i'm extremely passionate about but if you're feeling over sustained period of time that you're not vibing with the thing then i think it's a really healthy thing to try and question what that looks like and put some attention into exploring things you are passionate about but you'll know if you're passionate about it when you truly are passionate about it because you just get energized about it and it becomes vocation instead of work. You, you gain energy from it. There's a similar analogy that can be drawn with the difference between an introvert and an extrovert. An introvert can be incredible with people, but an introvert by definition gains energy by being with themselves. Yeah. Whereas an extrovert gains energy from being around others. And in that context, I would, I would encourage people to think about a passion that they think they may have or looking at exploring is, does it give you energy? Do you get fired up about it? What an awesome, what an awesome thing. Because you know, you hear you hear a lot of people saying, follow your passion, follow your passion, which is just thrown up, thrown about willy-nilly. But I like the way you said you've actually got to think about what your passion is. You know, you've got to spend some time to go, hey, what actually makes me, what actually lights my fire and what actually puts out my fire. And um, that's a great, great way for us to end our podcast today. Casey, thanks so much for sharing sharing your story. Um, I know I always, I mean, I've learned a lot and I'm sure listeners will really appreciate what you shared. Um, thank you for thank you for being on today. I really, really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. Tell listeners out there, thank you as always for being um, being the reason why we do this. Um, feel free to share this, like it, and you know, um, any comments, any feedback you have, feel free to share to say it through. Um, as always, thank you for being part of this community and we look forward to hearing how you fill up your boss of knowledge over the next few weeks. Thanks a lot and bye everybody.